0: It's crowdfunding season at Canada Land, and while the money doesn't go to us, it does go to some pretty incredible things, like the recent We Investigation, the upcoming Thunder Bay podcast, the outstanding work at Commons, and our flagship media accountability. Beyond the inexplicably popular Trudeau socks, new rewards include an ad-free podcast stream for as little as $5 a month. Go to patreon.com slash Canada and become a supporter.
1: This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. There's a reason Canadians are falling in love with the ND mattress. When you're shopping online for a mattress, you know how important reviews are. Andy's reviews are the best in the business, and they're outselling the competition for good reasons. If you've never tried Andy, try one today. They have a risk-free 100-night trial, and if you don't absolutely love it, they'll pick it up for free. No questions asked. Go to Endy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for $50 off any ND mattress. From Canada land, this is OPPO. <laughs> This week on a very special episode of Oppo, we're going to talk about an exciting new report that says modern civilization is—and I'm quoting here—totally fucked. And Jen is going to explain to me why Andrew Shear seems so unconcerned.
0: Climate change is a hoax. Then Justin sits down with Nathaniel Erskine Smith, Member of Parliament for Beaches East York, and so a total hippie. He's also the most independent minded member of the Liberal Caucus, which is kind of like being the tallest building in Gander.
1: And then we spark a joint, light a and force feed a pot pun brownie into your face and talk about the possibility that Andrew Scheer may yet try to recriminalize marijuana, should he become Prime Minister. We ask the question that's on everyone's lips Holy shit, is he seriously gonna make us keep talking about pot?
0: Answer yes. Yes, he is, you fucking narc. <laughs> Thank you. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Endy offers a 100-night trial with free returns, so you can test your mattress in the comfort of your home instead of a big box showroom floor. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they come pick it up from you and give you a full refund, no questions asked. With free shipping to every Canadian province in a box the size of a hockey bag, Endy is Canada's best-selling mattress, with the highest rate of customer satisfaction and the lowest rate of returns.
1: I just got back from a trip where I slept on a very uncomfortable mattress the whole week and was so happy to come back to my ND mattress.
0: Go to nd.ca and use the promo code OPPO for $50 off any ND Mattress.
1: So Jen, earlier this month, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report concluding that humans have already warmed the earth by about one degree and were likely to continue doing so, potentially as high as 1.5 degrees by a couple decades from now. And basically, that's really bad. If you want, you can listen to this charming man with a Scottish accent explain what we have to do to stop that from happening and from all of us dying, either by fire or flood. The pledges that governments have made over the
2: last three years are not enough to keep warming below 1.5 degrees C, even with ambitious and very challenging efforts after 2030. Carbon dioxide emissions would need to decline substantially before 2030 to avoid warming of more than 1.5 degrees C in the middle of the 21st century, followed by large-scale carbon dioxide removal.
0: And of course, the media pays very little attention to the IPCC report as usual, because it pretty much says the same thing every year, except every year it gets a tiny bit worse.
1: Yeah, but this is the worst report yet, and, and and so there's actually been very little actual coverage of this report. You're gonna hear an interview later where I'm chatting with Nader skin Smith, where we talk about it a bit, and he basically told me that you know he's been quizzed way more this week on cannabis than on the IPCC report, even though he sponsored an emergency debate about the crisis of climate change. Obviously, all reporters want to talk about is pot, but this is a big fucking deal. This report basically says cataclysmic climate change could happen before 2050. That's really fucking soon.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a couple of interesting questions that that raises. I mean, there's the old statement about, you know, the the frog in the pot, right? Media has a tendency to avoid really long-term, slow-moving cataclysms and pay much more attention to hurricanes and Major policy changes like that. So
1: hurricanes are a part of climate change.
0: Well, are they or aren't they? No, I mean, yes, yes of they are.
1: Yes, they are.
0: <laughs> but I mean, but they're, but they're, well, <laughs> I mean, I, we can go back to the old conversation about uh, whether or not any individual hurricane is impacted by climate change or whether or not you, what you see is a blah, 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 blah. Or blah, we blah, can blah,
1: blah. observe the science that they're becoming more intense and frequent because of climate change. Yes,
0: exactly, okay. exactly. So we all know that. Um, however, I mean, I don't think it's a mystery that media tends to focus on immediate emergencies or disasters or immediate effects more than they do on, on broader effects. And I think. For me, one of the outstanding questions when we say cataclysmic c- climate change, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about an extinction level event? Are we talking about mass disruption and removal? Are we talking about, you know, the end of a couple coastal city? Like, I don't really know what, I honestly don't well, know what extinction or cataclysmic n- level No event matter which means. one of
1: those it is, isn't that still worth seriously? I mean, literally, well, you know, it might not result in the end of civilization. It might just mean that we lose all of Florida. As much as I love the idea of losing Florida, that should be a <laughs> choice we make. Not one we let the environment make for us.
0: Well the environment is gonna make whatever choices they want. We don't really have a choice over what the environment <laughs> Well, We do have a choice.
1: We do have a choice. And so this IPCC report uh, uh, An uh, qu- earthquake could uh,
0: come and wipe out like half of the lower mainland tomorrow, man. We got no choice over that shit. Yeah, I'm but, not like We do I, have a I, choice
1: can't... in having less extreme global warming. The IPCC report says exactly that. There are things we can do now that will avert this horrible, horrible happening. And yet, and, and okay, the media has obviously been negligent in covering this, but there's leaders, especially leaders in the Conservative Party, who are aggressively trying to thwart any sort of serious regulation or you know climate change mitigation strategy for electoral gain. Jen, why are they doing this?
0: Well, that's actually a really interesting conversation. So, it's not just that they're trying to thwart any kind of policy changes. is that they are now unifying around anti-carbon tax legislation. They're That's the same thing. Around... No, no, it's literally It's literally Carbon worse. Carbon
1: pricing is, is the most useful tool we've found thus far uh, no, no, to Justin, reduce I'm agreeing CO2 with emissions. You. Give me I know. a second here.
0: I'm agreeing go with on, you. Calm go on. Go on.
1: Jen. I'm, just... I'm,
0: saying they're I'm not worried just about thwarting. I'm not. But, you know, <laughs> go on. thwarting would imply merely that they're just opposing a policy, right? That would be one thing. They're going much further than that. They're actually trying to rally their base around opposing this policy. That's that's much more serious than just trying to thwart a policy that they are disagreeing with. So let's first talk about what uh, the uh, carbon tax is and why I find this whole shift around the carbon tax for the conservatives so interesting. Because it's not a secret that the carbon tax originally was a pretty conservative policy that was coming out of largely conservative circles for a very, very long time. And what happened was, I would say about 10 to 15 years ago, uh, the environmental movement um, that was largely concerned and, and you know, rightly raising the warnings on climate change was largely left-wing and left weaning. And there was a sense among conservatives, particularly conservatives in Canada, that the environment was what they would call a shield issue, a defensive issue. This was an issue in which they weren't gonna score points because it was all the left-wing parties that were making it their sword issues. To a large extent, that's still the case. But what you did have previously was that you had conservatives like Preston Manning come out and say, like, this doesn't really need to be a defensive issue for us. There's nothing incompatible with trying to preserve the climate and the environment with conservative ideology. And, you know, we actually just need to embrace this. Further on top of that, there was a sense that the really extreme left wing environmentalists were trying to hitch anti-capitalist rhetoric onto the climate change rhetoric and you still see a little bit of this today there's a sense that the very very far lefties are saying look climate change is proof that capitalism is unsustainable and that we need to completely abolish the whole goddamn thing and go to a command style economy where essentially all your goods and services are rationed by a state entity or an ultra state entity and conservatives of course balked at that they were like no that's not right but there were some conservatives and that people who were with say the Ecofiscal commission or the manning conservative core who said okay We don't really think that communism is the answer to climate change. We think that capitalism actually provides us with policy-based tools that can help us address some of these problems and then still provide for innovation and human flourishing and, and market freedom. And that is where you get carbon pricing and cap and trade and carbon taxes. That's where you get this idea that climate change is ultimately a market failure or a tragedy of the commons problem. And by creating market-based tools to try and disincentivize carbon use you would do two things one you would encourage consumer uh, behavior at all levels to move away from carbon intensive uh, modes of transportation and technologies and all that and you would also incentivize alternatives like all of a sudden if it's really really expensive to drive your car on gas well now you're going to incentivize you to buy an electric car or you're going to incentivize markets to putting more time and effort and energy into non-gas alternatives to transportation so like that was the This was originally a conservative idea, and what you did find—they And
1: even took it a step further and made you know cap and trade um, kind of the de facto conservative policy. When he does that on an actual market level, it creates a new market for exactly that. And we've had a show before where we've debated the merits of cap and trade versus carbon tax.
0: So back in say 2008, you actually had uh, John Baird calling carbon trading a key part of the government's emissions plan. You had you know in the 2008 federal election, both the conservatives and the liberals started including carbon pricing in their platforms. You know, back under Stephen Harper, boo hiss. I know. You know, you had uh, a Jim Prentice, who was at that point the um, environment minister, saying that you know a national carbon market was a way forward. And then well, something changed. What happened? What happened? So for whatever reason, over time, you know, the influence of Preston Manning kind of waned. And him a, as like
1: chief advocate for carbon pricing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, his his whole philosophy kind of fell out of favor with the conservative movement in, in a big way. And then, you know, it's really interesting to me that even when Preston Manning sort of steps into political fray on totally unrelated topics now, I get a lot of really interesting tweets from conservatives saying like, you know, this guy isn't a conservative. He isn't one of us, essentially. You know, so there's that sense about. And then the other interesting thing that I think has happened is that as you've seen the federal liberals adopt this carbon backstop, you've seen a massive coalition at the provincial and federal level of conservative leaders rallying against the carbon tax and like and treating it as a unifying rallying point for conservatives across the country by which they will oppose Justin Trudeau.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's exactly what happened. I think what basically occurred is that conservatives kind of realized that there was probably no marginal gains to get beyond just admitting that climate change is a problem, right? The conservatives basically said, yes, we think you know human activity is causing CO2 emissions, which is causing climate change, which is bad. They found that They didn't have to do much beyond that, and they really wouldn't lose... Their base. Beyond that, they found that if you crusade against, um, you know, liberal or left-wing carbon pricing initiatives or environmental initiatives, um, you can paint them as ineffective, which is basically a lie. And, and what you've seen over the last, you know, couple of years is conservatives like Doug Ford, conservatives like Jason Kenney, conservatives like Andrew Scheer, you know, point at uh, the opposition and the, the liberals and, and the NDP and say uh, their plan doesn't work, even though we know it does, and say, oh, our plan's going to work, even though they don't have a fucking plan and it's infuriating listen to andrew shear sit here and pretend as though he actually is going to have a coherent plan instead of just reflexively opposing the federal carbon pricing plan
3: have a plan. Our our team is working on it uh, uh, right now. It's uh, going to be a comprehensive span, uh, plan. It's going to it's going to it's going to have meaningful action. And that's the thing that that is so frustrating about the liberal plan. They uh, it's it's all about the carbon tax. It's all about the carbon tax. Our plan will speak to incentivizing uh, businesses to make reductions. Also take into account the. the the, the impact when jobs and emissions leave the country. Because global emissions don't go down when a company leaves Canada and produces things in other countries. So it will capture the, the, the principle that we can do things better here in Canada with higher environmental standards that actually has a better impact on global emissions.
0: This is where the Conservatives are right, is that for a carbon tax to be effective, it needs to be high enough to actually encourage people to do different things and engage in different behaviors. And secondly, us imposing a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system in isolation is pointless. The top emitters of greenhouse gases are overwhelmingly the United States, China, and India. You know, if we don't have buy-in from largely those three countries, everything that we do will be pretty futile on the climate change file. That being said, here's where the Conservatives are badly wrong. If Every country uses that as an excuse. If every country uses the inaction of every other country as an excuse, then we have a tragedy of the commons problem, and nobody takes any responsibility. Nobody steps up. Nobody takes leadership, and nothing gets done, and nothing gets changed. If Canada, which has one of the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions profiles in the world, if if country like Canada can't bring itself to step up and take leadership, best of luck trying to morally pressure anybody else, least of all the U.S., into doing so
1: but the conservatives don't want to get there because it's been really fucking effective for them.
0: Yes, exactly. There's an electoral benefit to the conservatives fighting the carbon tax. There's an ephemeral sort of boost that they get when Jason Kenney and Doug Ford can fill a conference hall on a Friday filled with people who hate the carbon tax because to them, the carbon tax doesn't just represent a carbon tax. To them, the carbon tax represents everything that Trudeau is about. And it represents, you know, the loss of their livelihoods and jobs. And it represents increasing bills for the cost of living just as their quality of life and their wages are going down. Like That's what the carbon tax represents to people who oppose it.
1: But we know it's a lie. This is so frustrating. So you know, I think you're right. Like I think the Conservatives recognize this is a problem. They recognize climate change is a problem. They should recognize that a carbon pricing scheme uh, is a good way to reduce CO2 emissions and try to fix that problem. They recognize that there's, there's an international benefit to Canada doing this and leading the way for others. I, I think they recognize all those things. I think Jason Kenney knows this. I think Doug Ford, I'm not sure Doug Ford knows it. I think Jason Kenny knows this, I think Andrew Shear knows this, but they're choosing not to do that for the sake of power, and that is maybe one of the most cynical things I've ever seen in politics. It, it is mind-boggling to me. That they're willing to use this as their lance to go after Trudeau. There's other things you can do. I mean, you know, the the guy raised taxes. The guy's running up massive deficits. You know, go after cannabis for fuck's sake. Go after anything else.
0: Now, keep in mind, I'm not making a moral defense of what the. I I know you're not, but
1: you're articulating exactly what they're doing. And I think that's what's making me angry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. There are very few policies that can unite conservatives across the country. Usually the problem with um, any type of uh, contentious policy issue that would serve to rally voters on on a particular point. The problem with those issues is that You know, something that benefits Quebec might disadvantage Alberta or vice versa, something that benefits B.C. might disadvantage Newfoundland. You know what I mean? Like, so you don't really get this alliance building at the provincial level because usually the provinces sort of act in their own narrow geographical self-interest. So what we're seeing right here is really interesting because the carbon tax is one of those few policy issues in which conservatives from across the country can be unified in their opposition without worrying about alienating or harming other conservatives in other parts of the country. So it's a fascinating policy tool by which to try and rally supporters. The risk that I think the conservatives are running here is that I don't think climate change is going away. I don't think environmental awareness or activism is going away. And the more they take anti-carbon tax, anti-climate change policies seriously, and the more they rally people around them, the more you risk just handing off this increasingly important topic to the left. And that's the long term political risk here is that they're handing off these policies to people who are going to be like, eh, fuck it. Capitalism's the problem. (laughs) We don't need market based solutions to solve this. We just need to go to a command style economy where the state starts dictating what we can buy. I'm I'm fucking getting there (laughs) because
1: the NDP has been useless on this. Oh, actually, that reminds me, Jen, it's time for a weekly segment. Where the the fuck fuck is the NDP? NDP? (laughs) You know, the NDP have, sure, they've offered some minor criticism of the Liberals' plan. It's been largely irrelevant. The Conservatives have a spot here to criticize the government for being ineffective in its policy. You know, I actually think it would be very smart for Andrew Scheer to either say what we need is... a federal carbon pricing scheme that returns money immediately back to taxpayers' pockets and doesn't let provinces decide whether or not they're going to do so, or to say that we should have had a more thoughtful provincial strategy, i.e. one that is a carbon tax that requires the revenue to be returned back to Canadians' pockets. I think that's a very conservative approach to all of this, and they're squandering that chance uh, because they basically have noticed that there's a wedge issue they can use to get short-term electoral gain, and they're just going to kill us all in the process, which kind of bums me out.
0: To be fair, I don't really think Canada is going to do too poorly as a result of climate change. We're really doing this for other countries more than ourselves. Let like, me ask you
1: this. Let me ask you this because Andrew Shear keeps saying, I'm going to come up with a policy. I'm going to come up with a policy. For other leaders like Doug Ford and, and Donald Trump, they actually use the exact same uh, rhetorical device, which is they'll use ecology as a substitute for environmentalism. They'll say, Oh, we don't need that dumb carbon tax. We're going to make sure all our rivers are clean. And actually, Francois Legault of, of the CAQ, the new premier in Quebec, has done the same thing on the campaign trail. Do you think industry was going to go that way, or is he going to try to uh, resuscitate Stephen Harper's weird sector-by-sector uh, regulation model that didn't, in the end, seem to do all that much?
0: Well, this is really interesting to me because, to me, this is a way of conservatives trying to have their cake and eat it, too, right? This is them saying, hey, look, we are going to take a, a leadership role on the environment. We're for preserving this forest. We're for preserving this. We this- all love we're the we're fucking for preserving- forest. We all love the fucking forest. Exactly. <laughs> I get that. I just don't think it's going to be enough. Of so, course it's not. As I said, it's not like, designed in, to be. In an era of populism, when there's a huge desire to radically upend the current liberal economic order, the whole idea that the problem with climate change is fundamentally and irrevocably tied to capitalism as a whole is a really superficially compelling idea. And I think that conservatives are probably gaining short term, but potentially really losing the long term game by you know refusing to acknowledge a policy issue that's really important to a lot of people and a lot of canadians in particular they're, they're taking a really risky tack here maybe not a risky tack for the next election maybe not a risky tack for the next two elections or three but you know you got in a generational a risky
1: tack for florida
0: a risky well we don't really again we've established we don't we don't care about florida
1: we don't care about florida <laughs> <laughs>
0: This episode of OPPO is brought to you by Molecule, the only air purifier that actually destroys pollutants. Molecule is a complete reinvention of the air purifier, not just an improvement on existing outdated technology. It was developed by a scientist whose son suffered from asthma and who was frustrated by the fact that HEPA air purifiers did not relieve his son's symptoms. Unlike these filters, Molecule destroys indoor air pollutants at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air you breathe. Molecule technology has been personally affected and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule's already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com and enter OPPO when you check out.
1: So here on OPPO, we regularly invite politicians from across the country to come into studio and submit themselves to our profanity and loaded questions. And perhaps unsurprisingly, very few have actually taken up that offer. But today I'm sitting across from someone who's just desperate enough for re-election to come in and do it. Nathaniel Erskine Smith has been Liberal Member of Parliament for Beaches East York since 2015. Before that, he was an Oxford-educated constitutional lawyer. That's right, isn't it? I read it on Wikipedia. Yeah, I
2: feel like that's sorta of right.
1: Okay. Since being elected, he's easily been the most rebellious MP in the House of Commons. You voted against your party, I think, more than anybody else in the House has, I as of lost last track. count. You voted against your own party on condemning boycott divestment, sanctions movement. You criticize your government for not moving faster and going farther on drug decriminalization, and you've chastised your own party for not following through on its promise to end the blood ban for gay men. So my first question for you is, when are you challenging Jagmeet Singh for leader of the NDP? <laughs> when, when he was running, the Prime Minister, Trudeau, said he was going to have a more effective House of Commons, one where everything was going to be wonderful, and he encouraged his MPs to challenge his own government. That hasn't really happened, apart from you and a, a couple of other MPs. Almost every vote uh, goes through with almost unanimous caucus support, um, and there's very few votes where the government has actually lost on anything. Why is that?
2: It's hard to say. I mean, certainly when you look at really difficult debates, so assisted dying, I certainly wasn't the only one to get up. We had Rob Oliphant get up. We had David No, no, no. Assisted
1: dying, you you did not support the way your government...
2: No, I didn't, but I'm saying other other MPs stood up with me and and disagreed as well. I mean, I think it's a rare case where I've been the only one to get up and disagree with the government. I'm I'm trying to think. There was a vote from the NDP opposition... uh, to decriminalize cannabis use immediately while we were pursuing legalization, I think was the only liberal to get up. I I think there's a lot of self policing in the sense that people want to everyone wants to be in cabinet, everyone wants to you know be play nice and get ahead and trade off and, and exercise influence within caucus and exercising influence within caucus, for some people that I think that means being a united front outside of caucus are there
1: liberal mps who go into caucus and you know bang their fists on the table and say we can't do this this is this is idiotic we have to do it about face and then go into the house and basically smile and and read statements saying yeah i love it. it's a great idea
2: i don't know (laughs) i don't know that it's as as black and white as that but certainly there are there is vocal criticism within our caucus and outside of caucus i think there is a, an emphasis on, on unity. Uh, my view generally has been if we're honest, we're respectful, and we're thoughtful in the way we, that we disagree outside of caucus, I actually think that's a good thing for our democracy and a good thing for the Liberal Party. But a lot of cases that doesn't even happen. You still have Liberal MPs, like MPs from all parties.
1: I mean, the Liberal Party is uh, unified on most fronts, but I mean, the Conservative Party if anything is even more rank and file than, uh, than that, and the NDP even more so. Even more so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know why is it there's so many MPs who just stand up and read the notes that were given to them by the Prime Minister's Office? I mean that that is what happened. I mean you you see you can you, you know I've sat in the gallery enough. I've looked down in the House. I can see you know what they're reading from. They're they're reading statements prepared by their their minders in the PMO. I mean
2: you know is that good for democracy? It kind of makes me sad. So I don't do that. I I asked my first question in the House the other day. And I had been given a question, and I said, I'm not going to read this question, but I don't mind the topic. So if you allow me to write my own question, I'm happy to ask a question. Uh, And then they allowed me to write my own question, and all was well with the world. But uh, I think the more that MPs were writing their own questions, the more that MPs were not running everything through the center to make sure it was perfectly okay with everyone and watered down to a significant degree, yeah, I think democracy would be better off, no question. Right. And obviously, the fact that you haven't wanted to do that, does that explain
1: why you've only had one question? (laughs)
2: Probably, yeah. I mean, (laughs) but keep in mind, I mean, I don't think government members asking questions in question period is a particularly useful exercise. I mean, question period itself is political theater and to the extent that it's effective. It doesn't have to be, though. Oh, certainly it doesn't have to be, but I've I, you know you followed it longer than I have probably, but I've followed it for the last three years by virtue of just having yeah. to sit there. It's not a particularly useful amount of time. I joke that it's you know my least favorite part of part of the day, and it it is political theater. I think it comes down to people being worried about stepping outside that box, and there's not great upside perhaps, and there's a lot of downside, and so people play it safe.
1: Let me ask you about uh, your emergency debate the other night, because this is a case where the House of Commons actually ended up turning into something useful and and thoughtful, um, which is the new Intergovernmental Report on Climate Change. Um, You pushed
2: for an emergency debate to have the House come together and chat about, I guess, solutions. How did that go? That was great. I mean, and that was an exercise in a number of MPs from different parties coming together and pushing for the same thing. So I had gotten up and I'd written a letter to the Speaker... The previous week, calling for an emergency debate because of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and and that special report on one and a half degrees and the really dire warning that if we don't act now over the next few years, we're going to see incredibly negative consequences for our planet many years from now and and not so many years from now, potentially 12 years from now. And Elizabeth May did a similar thing, Uh, Guy Caron did a similar thing, and so uh, the speaker allowed us to have a six hour debate and a number of parliamentarians got up and it was actually one of the few full debates where you didn't see members stand up and read canned lines that everyone brought their own views to the table. Let's talk about drugs. Uh, <laughs> you've been you've been pushing your own government to uh,
1: decriminalize drugs earlier. You've been pushing your government to uh, move forward on, I believe, uh, allowing edibles uh, in the first year. We've only been legal for a week. But what's your take thus
2: far? On drug policy more broadly? No, let's talk about weed. I mean, do you... Th- okay. So,
1: we're, we're a week out. You know, it's been... Oh, so I think on
2: weed, I mean, on, on cannabis, it's it's great news. I mean, we've seen the government on day one say we're going to move forward with pardons. We can have a debate about pardons versus expungements, but at the end of the day, I think we're well ahead of, of where I ever expected this to be 10 years ago. So, it's excellent that we're moving forward with evidence-based drug policy on a cannabis file that... Canadians are, are going to be treated like responsible adults, but that we have a public health framework so that we're going to limit commercial advertising and, uh, and a number of other rules that put an emphasis on public health. So, I mean, I think that policy, that's good. I think I think there are still some details to be worked out over the coming year on edibles. We should have done it earlier. It is what it is. A year from now, sure. I think most Canadians can wait um <laughs> i cannot wait for my pop brownie <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, I, a lot of people won't wait and they'll yeah. bake at home that's fine but uh but it is going to be a, a a reality soon enough and the driving piece is going to have to work its way through the courts to some extent but all things considered i'm very pleased that w- that we we made a promise and we and we and we fulfilled that promise in a substantive way and i think it, my view is if I I volunteered for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association when I was a, a lawyer a little bit. And Bill Blair was obviously the chief of police. And if you can set a policy that gets both of us on board with it enough, I think you've you've threaded the needle. Is there anything else that's
1: going to happen in the next short term, though? I mean, you know, the government has talked a fair bit and it has announced, you know, the initiatives you mentioned, safe consumption sites, yeah. some new money. It's obviously not enough. I yeah. mean, it's not even remotely enough. You're still yeah. seeing people die by the thousands. Um, so where is the next step? It kind of seems like your government is just very happy patting itself on the back because there's honestly nobody you know, with a voice loud enough criticizing you on the
2: national stage for not doing enough. So I've tried. <laughs> but, uh, but not just that. I think... My efforts over the next year are to continue to elevate this issue wherever possible. So when the prime minister signed on to a document at the UN that was pushed by Trump to say, let's renew the war on drugs, I got up and spoke out to say, this is a failed course and we should be treating drug use as a health issue. And here's a boatload of experts all saying the same thing. And they did sign it. And they did sign it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, my view is wherever... People are going to pay attention this, to this issue. I need to, and others whoever have a similar view, need to insert ourselves into the conversation to keep educating Canadians that the right solution is to treat this as a health issue. Because, as I say, you know, in this role, part of the role is in the House of Commons and trying to convince the government. And but I've learned over the last three years that a lot of the work on climate change or on drug policy where the government isn't there yet, it's about educating Canadians and creating a space for this government or a future government to be able to t- make the changes that, that I think that they should be making.
1: I'm going to a limb here, but I'm assuming there's a number of members of the Liberal Party, of the liberal, liberal Caucus, who agree with you. I mean, isn't the way Parliament's supposed to work that if there's enough MPs who can get behind an idea, they can push either Parliament or even their own party or caucus to move in a certain direction? Evidently, that activism or that organization isn't happening, at least not that I can see.
2: Well, it's difficult. We have very few opportunities to introduce legislation that will be debated and heard as, as backbenchers and private members. There are opportunities to push the government, certainly, but there are a few outlets where you're going to see the government necessarily act on that. So I did see $230 million in the last budget. I think that was a result of a number of people getting up from our BC caucus and our Ontario caucus and saying this is a crisis and we need action. So we have seen movement because of voices in caucus. Uh, I would say if we're talking about moving the needle further on treating this as a health issue and re- removing the criminal sanction, we're going to need a mandate from the 2019 election. At least that—that that is the view that I've overwhelmingly heard from those in the center. And Part of that comes down to the fact that we just dealt with cannabis, and so I think there's a worry that we've already put ourselves out there in terms of legalizing cannabis, and we don't want to then be seen as the party that is so far out there to say, we're legalizing cannabis, decriminalizing all drugs. You can't have too much progress. Uh, Well, uh, this is the, the reality of politics, is that it's the art of the possible, and unless you want Andrew Scheer to be your prime minister, If you get a liberal government that gets out too far too fast, and look, I I represent Peaches East York. I can get out too far too fast. It's (laughs) all good. Um, I I, I love representing the writing that I do, and having I I get to say what I want to say, and look, if they want to vote me out for saying what I say, they can vote me out. I can go back to a life as a lawyer. All good. That's the job. But I think there's a, a general worry from people who have to manage the country dynamics more than I have to that... If we get out ahead of certain issues and lose popular support, then we lose everything and we lose all the progress that, that we've made.
1: Can I suggest that when politicians say things like politics is the art of the possible and we can't move too fast and all that, that's what people hate about politics yeah, the most? I, mean, I agree. I mean, I, mean I, hear, I, I hear people say that and it gets it, it actually gets under my skin so bad because, you know, especially if you if you can find at least public, some public support or if it's a matter that doesn't need public support, this is a health issue that shouldn't be uh, legislated by opinion polls. Uh, and I hear politicians say, well, we can't go too fast. It, you know, it's we gave you four years. It's not a pre-election campaign
2: we gave you. It's four years of governing, not four years of preparing for the next election. So just to turn it back to climate change for a second, just in terms of, because I think it's a similar conversation. In my speech to the House, I emphasize this, this idea of... Our job is to build political support for good ideas and and right answers. And I think it's very true of climate change. It's true of drug policy as well, that our job as representatives of our communities and as leaders, we're not just there to get elected the next time. That certainly shouldn't be the job. And we shouldn't be taking the easy way out just to say whatever we need to say to get elected the next time that we where there is a serious issue like climate change, where the evidence is clear, but maybe not all Canadians are completely bought into the idea, then our job is to educate Canadians and to be leaders. And unfortunately, on climate change, among other issues, I think there is a short supply of, of bold leadership on some of these issues.
1: All right, last word, uh, bestiality. <laughs> <laughs> you tried to f- okay. So
2: uh, <laughs> last word. Yeah, I, that we'll this, we'll this <laughs> that's well. We'll end it there. That's,
1: that's quite enough of that. Well, no, no I mean, <laughs> the, the Supreme Court decided uh, a couple of years ago that uh, not all types of beef are criminalized in Canada. You brought forward legislation to fix it. It didn't go anywhere. The government has finally
2: come around and introduced legislation to do exactly that. Are you happy? Well, so I introduced a bill that would have done a lot of different things and would have uh, overhauled the criminal code in some ways on animal cruelty, consistent with what three liberal justice ministers previously had proposed and what had been debated for like 100 hours in the House and actually had a lot of consensus on all sides. And um, unfortunately, we were many years removed from those debates. And so there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation spread by a lot of the lobby groups that hold more sway than they should. And so in what we what did we see? We saw a bill introduced to address two very narrow issues, bestiality and, and animal fighting. And my my two cents is any step to improve animals' lives and to strengthen animal cruelty, regardless of how modest, is an important step. These are modest steps, and I hope that it's a signal that we're going to do more. So it, it, it's good, but I, like I, I, maybe this is a recurring theme. But if you know the steps are positive ones, but I want to I, I want to see more. No question. Thanks for coming on. Do me a favor when you're in caucus uh, next week. Would we, mind just asking some of your colleagues to come on? I would really appreciate <laughs> that. And the only other thing I say is uh, you know I called for an emergency debate in the House of Commons on climate change, and we debated for six hours. And maybe there were three or four news stories about it. And then cannabis legalization. And I, I walk outside the House of Commons and like do an offhand scrum about my cannabis use. And then I'm on the national. And that is fucked up. Yeah. It's Wait. almost as though the media's priorities aren't always right. <laughs> so it's not just us. So, Justin. Hey, Jen.
0: Remember when we were talking about what to do for this week on the show, and I wanted to talk about the decriminalization of marijuana, and you were all like, dude, I'm a cool former vice reporter. I am all over legal weed. That shit is for suburban moms now. I'm Everyone's cool tired of, of it.
1: Everyone yeah, is tired of you're weed. You're too
0: cool. You're too cool for that shit. It's for, it's for suburban moms now, right?
1: Yes. I'm going straight to heroin. Give me that. Is that a giant jar of weed?
0: <laughs> well... You're right, Justin. It was my idea originally on Oppo to get high on weed. Oh
1: my God.
0: <laughs> and then to talk we start about eating weed Because I thought it would be really funny. Hey, look, I made little gummy bears. They're so cute.
1: Is that really a weed gummy?
0: I'm really good at cooking, Justin.
1: Edibles aren't legal yet, Jen.
0: They are if you make them yourself.
1: Uh, It's somewhat true. Are you, you going to? Okay. That's a really awkward way of. You know it's going to take like 40 minutes for that to kick in. You're not going to like chew it, swallow it, and then immediately be seeing like new colors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> don't spoil my buzz. Don't don't right. spoil my buzz, Justin. There goes my career in politics. Well, We were going to be really funny this episode, but you were like, no, we have to talk about climate change. Yes, we have really. to
1: talk about climate change or else we're all going to die.
0: Yeah, we're not, though.
1: No, we're I mean, we literally gonna, could all die. No, I we're, mean, this we're, is a real, we're all going to die eventually. But a right? lot sooner. Like, maybe, 2030 maybe not. is, like, relatively soon.
0: I don't think we're going to die in 2030. Well, but that's probably just my weed talking.
1: What have I been in Florida?
0: We're in, I, I'm in a beautiful plain far away from any of the rising <laughs> oceans. Okay?
1: Jen, as long as we're talking about things, Andrew Shear is fucking up. Please explain to me why Andrew Shear seems to be unwilling to commit to keeping pot legal if he becomes prime minister.
0: I have no fucking idea. What the fuck is wrong with him?
1: Again, it's one of these things, he seems intent on just litigating things that do not need to be litigated for electoral purposes. Like, wasn't he supposed to be the principled conservative in the race? There's
0: no votes to be had in this. I I don't, like, don't get me wrong. I think that the real issue here, and what this is actually indicative of the fact, is that uh, Andrew Scheer is surrounding himself with a lot of people who say and think the same things. A lot of political leaders do this, okay? But, you know, he's a pretty socially conservative guy, And most of the guys in his sphere, I think, are pretty much likewise. And I don't think that they have a lot of exposure to marijuana. And I think that the people who they hear from are, you know, the people who are in their base, who are fundamentally concerned with what marijuana is going to do to their kids and what kind of long-term social effects this is actually going to have. And I think their concern is deeply felt. The problem is that that is a very narrow... Yeah, it's a very narrow... It's a stupid concern. It's a very narrow sphere. And, you know, the idea that conservatives don't smoke weed is, I'm really sorry to break it to you, but weed is used at all levels of society among pretty much all age groups in this country, and it's probably massively underreported, the amount of use there is. So I don't see that there are votes here, and I think that this is just one of these bizarre tone-deaf statements that he's making without realizing how incredibly off-putting it will be.
1: Let's hear that bizarre tone-deaf statement uh, because he was asked about this uh, on CTV.
2: Just yes or no then, is legalization here to stay as far as you're concerned, or could it be hauled back into decriminalization or recriminalization? so the Conservative Party will do
3: our due diligence, examine the consequences of this uh, decision, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll examine the reality on the ground. We have to be realistic about what a change like this mm-hmm. uh, means to society and all the ramifications. Uh, but I can tell you that, that we are watching this very closely. We'll do what the Liberals didn't do and take uh, an evidence-based approach to what we propose in the next election.
1: <sighs> like, why can't you just fucking say... We accept this as the reality and maybe we'll change the law when we're in government, but unless there's significant impetus to do so, we're not gonna criminalize pot again. Why can't you just say that?
0: Conservatives, what? conservatives, yo, if you relitigate pot in 2019, you lose.
1: Don't make like, me you, keep th- talking th- about, just, about it. It's just, just, over.
0: You, it's over. It's done. It's it's like gay marriage. It's done. The boat has sailed.
1: Just let me gay marry my bong already.
0: That's it for Oppo. We are back in two weeks. Let us know what you think. You can email us at oppo at Canadaland or find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast.
1: Canada Land's Thunder Bay podcast just launched on Monday. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Music by Nathan Burley.
1: I had the last word this week, and that word is bestiality, because the Liberals have finally introduced legislation to criminalize bestiality, which we mentioned on the show last week.
0: Oppo gets action! <laughs>
1: On a much more somber note, this week we're going to leave you with a clip of an Arabic language interview with Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, where midway through he's interrupted by a cat that just wanders into the interview. As you probably know, Khashoggi was murdered by Saudi security operatives in the kingdom's Turkish embassy earlier this month, and that's fucking horrible. But at least this clip is a little bit lighter. I نشأت وسط جيل عاش سفر عاش هجرة أهل المدينة خلال الأولى. والدي رحمه الله احمد خاشوقجي <تصفيق> لا في حاجه غلط كده والله مش طبيعي كده مش طبيعي هي عايزه تدفع والله يا
3: حاجه ده في الفيلم يعني <تصفيق>